As we make our way through the Gospel of Luke today, we now find ourselves in the middle of Luke chapter 4. So far, just to recap a little bit for you, what we've done is, is see the, the birth, the genealogy of Jesus, and then the representation of Jesus as our new Adam, our new representative in the showdown in the desert against the devil where he conquers Satan, defeats him thoroughly, and then begins his public ministry. As he does, there's immediate blowback against what it is that he preaches because what he preaches is good news to us because it means that the Gentiles are coming into the kingdom of God. Amen. And Jews didn't like that, but as he continues to preach throughout the area, he now moves from Nazareth, his hometown, where we looked last week, now over into Capernaum. And I think I've got a map here. Let's see. Uh, That's the sermon title today, so it gets intense. Jesus declares war. All right, so here's, here's now where a lot of the activity of our gospel in Luke is going to move. And as you look on this map, got to get this free. Uh, as you look on this map, uh, you, you, you see the Sea of Galilee. Think of it, if you, if you would, as a clock dial. And, and between 9 and 11 o'clock is where a lot of the ministry of Jesus occurs. And where we are right now is, is right in that range. And you can see Capernaum, the, the town circled by the red dot. And this is where Jesus comes in to spend a good bit of his time. We were able to visit Capernaum not too long ago. Matter of fact, uh, Corey was there, a few, few others of us that were able to make it there. Again, we will be going in 2015 in November. So if there's any chance of you being able to go, it is astounding how all of this comes to life. Even, even reading through this, of seeing how he's made his way now from Nazareth over here, all the way up over to Capernaum. There's so much that just becomes so clear as you read the gospel uh, by seeing it through the lens of the topography of that area. So now we we end up over in Luke 4, in verse 31, and Jesus has settled in to the edge of the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum, a fishing village, a small village, but a village with a synagogue, surrounded by some homes. As a matter of fact, let me give you a little bit more setting here too. This is an aerial shot as they were excavating Capernaum. Uh, Over here, on, on this end here, is the synagogue. It is the ruins of a synagogue that was built after Jesus' time, but as they dug deeper, they realized it was built on top of a synagogue that was in existence during Jesus' time. And then, typical of a village like this, all of the people, including farmer, fishermen, you name it, they all lived as close to the synagogue as possible. We're talking row houses, tenement houses, community living, pack it in as close as you can, That was the way that the Jewish lifestyle preferred, to have community in all that they did as close to the teaching of God as possible. Very inspiring. And then at the end over there, you can see what was just a simple house with concentric circles of of octagonal shapes radiating out from the original structure. Do you see that up at at the end there? That is most likely to have been Peter's home. And, and there's good archaeological evidence from very early on that that was likely the site. And again, in the midst of all of the homes there, uh, over, uh, beyond that site there is the Sea of Galilee. It's just down a slope, maybe 100 yards, 
from Peter's home is the Sea of Galilee. So this is all very tightly packed in everything that happens. Over, over the years, by the way, why you see all those structures around it is that it became a, a place that eventually was a house church. And as a house church, it, it had a baptistry. All of the early churches that are excavated, by the way, have baptistries featured prominently in them. It's, it's actually quite interesting to see how prominently they are featured. And then over time, how as, as the really centuries march on, how the additional layers of churches, the baptistries feature much less prominently. Uh, and again, not because of the Bible, but because of tradition as the years wear on. But anyway, so this is, this is the site where we are looking right now. Let me begin to read then with this in mind. Starting at verse 31. They went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. So a little bit different than what we saw in Nazareth, where, you know, he's a hometown boy, and, you know, is the whole, you know, bless his heart, he thinks he's the Messiah, isn't that nice? But no, now, with a little bit of space of time and familiarity between him, now as he brings the word of God, he does so with authority. And people sit and, sit and listen to Jesus, who is also sitting, by the way, that's the style of teaching, they sit and listen with rapt attention as he brings the word of God with authority. And Mark's gospel says, unlike the teachers of the law, the teachers of the law would have been dry, dry, dry. They would have just read, cited other references, cited other rabbis, where Jesus just brings it on his own conviction. And so he lays it out, and all are amazed. He moves on. In a synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. The, the phrase is an unclean spirit of, of a demon. So an unclean spirit. He cried out, at the top of his voice. So just think, again, to get this setting here in the synagogue, it's not very big synagogue, by the way, so you're all you know, pretty close in. Smaller, by the way, than this gathering is the size of this synagogue. And in there is someone with an unclean spirit. And the words that are used here are the idea of a shrieking, a, a, a painfully loud shrieking that would be coming from this man who is possessed by this unclean spirit. If you're in a synagogue, it, it is a frightening scene to actually even see any of that. I, I, don't, even, I don't even like watching you know, scary movies with possession, you know, even though knowing that that's just you know, a, a movie maker's idea that's going on. But imagine being in that setting wow. where all of this is going down. I would be freaked out to say the least. <laughs> But Jesus, as, as this comes out, and the shrieking is addressed at Jesus as he's trying to teach the crowd. Talk about heckling at this point in time. But what is it, the shrieking? The shrieking is, get away, get out, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And then the, this next statement is not a question, actually, in the original language. It's a statement. You have come to destroy us. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. That said sternly is the word epitomao. It is the word rebuked. He, he uses it against demons actually quite often. He'll use it again when he rebukes the fever that we'll see in the, in the next paragraph that Peter's mother-in-law has. He uses it when the storm which I think is of demonic activity, tries to swamp the boat and he rebukes the wind and the waves. 
When the boy is tossed back and forth by a demon that throws him to the ground and tries to drown him even, Jesus rebukes that, that demon as well. It is a, a fierce censure on the part of Jesus here as he confronts the demons. As First uh, John 3, 8 tells us, I think it's First John 3, 8, Jesus has come to destroy the work of the devil. This is not just interesting stuff at this point. This is war. And it's on our behalf. Because we have been taken captive in the dominion of Satan and Jesus is going to come and set us free and bring us into his own kingdom. That is being established here. And we ought to be praising God that Jesus has got the fortitude to step in on our behalf and fight this amazingly good fight for us. And everything that goes on here, as we see it and we marvel, know that this is your big brother going to war for you and for your soul. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Why without injuring him? One, Luke is a doctor, so I think he would be appreciative of that. But also, it's because of what the demon said earlier. You have come to destroy us. What is it you want with us? There's a veiled threat there. Almost like a a criminal who takes a hostage and has a knife at their throat or a gun to their head. And says, alright, if you want to get me, you're going to have to go through them. And that is the veiled threat that seems to be coming from the demon at this point. Is, alright Jesus, you've come to destroy me. Well, guess what? This guy's going down in the process. But with the very word of Jesus, the miracle that's here is not just that the demon is conquered with the authority of Jesus, but the demon is conquered and the real purpose of Jesus is revealed. He's conquered without the man being harmed. Because Jesus comes to make sure that we're the ones that are saved as the demons are defeated in the process. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words are these? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. So much so that this little town of Capernaum probably is not going to be able to handle the throngs of crowds that are going to come pressing in upon it. I think that's also why, just as speculative on my part, why Jesus makes his base in a place with an exit door. What is the exit door? The Sea of Galilee. And at any point, Jesus can get on a boat, if he could just maybe meet some fishermen who could accommodate him, and have access to so many other spots for him to be able to go and preach, or just even to get away, if necessary, and to give a bit of a release valve to the occupants of Capernaum from all of the kind of pilgrims that are, that are coming to try to seek out Jesus. And so it's a very strategic spot. You don't see the map right now, though, but it is a very strategic spot for that. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now remember, this is still the Sabbath day. These are the events of, of the same day. And, and so now he leaves the synagogue. It's not much of a, of a walk. Obviously, he's just you know, coming, coming up to the, the home of Simon there. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering with a high fever. The word for mother-in-law is panthera, panthera. And 
It, it does imply that Peter was married. And that's interesting, you know, from, from a you know, kind of Catholic point of view, how I grew up, uh, you know, with him being the Pope and him being married and even, even having kids. Uh, and, and not only is it corroborated by this passage that Peter was married, but in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, don't I have the right to bring along a, a believing wife just as Peter does? And then on top of that, Eusebius, who is the de facto church historian who writes around the 300s, speaks not only of Peter and his wife, but he speaks of Peter's wife engaged in the women's ministry. And on top of that, even discusses a bit their children. So, again, just interesting note here. It's a, a bit of an inflammatory word in terms of debate doctrinally in, in church history, this word panthera. Uh, but for sure... Peter was married and he had a mother-in-law. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he, Jesus, bent over her and rebuked the fever. Same, same word, epitomao, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset. Now the Jewish day begins and ends at sunset. It's an interesting note here because at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each of them, he healed them. Why does this all begin at sunset? Because the Sabbath has ended. And with the Sabbath ending, now you won't break a Sabbath tradition, maybe not a law so much, but a Sabbath tradition by you know, picking up David and carrying you know, him and all of his ailments down to Capernaum and to have him before this miracle worker that is able to have victory not only over disease, but over, uh, over demons as well. And so that's why at sunset all of this begins. Now it's also at sunset, which means he's already had a long day. That's a rather emotional day when it's basically the day that you've declared war. And yeah, there, there's, there's war over sin in people's lives, but it's frightening, I would imagine, that you are now standing in the gap fully humbled to the state of man and you declare war on all the demons and are ready now to destroy the works of Satan. And at the end of that day where you think, all right, one last healing here with Peter's mom, your mother-in-law, got it, and now you're ready to relax and all of a sudden you hear the rumbling. And it's after sunset that people begin to travel. So from wherever it is that they come, it is quite a bit of people, and, and they come starting after sunset. They're probably arriving quite late. And so you hear, here you see a, a typical day in the life of Jesus, whereas he is fighting this fight. He begins early, and it goes on late, late, late into the night. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them, same word again, and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Why the messianic secret? Why not just, hey, you know what? They're a mess. I'm going to destroy them. But what they said, well, I got to give that to them. Why, 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 does he, why does he not have that approach? Well, because the, the, there's a difference of the idea of the Messiah as a conquering king versus a suffering servant. And quickly we'll see that as the people view him as potentially the conquering king, they are ready to bring up arms and as John 6 says, fight to make Jesus king. 
That's not the kind of distraction that he needs at this time. He needs them to recognize there's a bigger, deeper battle than a political one going on right here. And what is that at stake? It's the battle for your soul. Every one of us, as we sit here, this is what Jesus is concerned about. A battle for your soul. And at daybreak, after all of this night of hard work, Jesus went to a solitary place. We know from Mark 1 that this is a place where he goes and prays. That's how he begins his day. If I had a day like that, I would say to myself, if there were such things as alarms, I'm not plugging that thing in. You know what, tomorrow, I'm just going to wake up naturally. You ever have those days? I'm going to wake up naturally. And just let my whole rest cycle get reset back to where it needs to be. But not Jesus. And he's fully human, as well as fully God, but gets up while it's still dark, goes out to a solitary place where he prays. And the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. I appreciate this part about Jesus, too, in that if somebody interrupted me in my quiet time, I think I would feel a little bit self-justified of, yo, I'm, I'm having my time with God here. I mean, a little respect, please. I mean, it's my time with God. But Jesus realizes, no, 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 the only reason that I'm having this time of prayer is so that I'm all the better equipped and empowered to be able to go help people. And, and so as he's interrupted in, in this sense by people, he's happy to be, again, fully engaged in helping people. That's his heart of compassion. He loves us that much. We are not an interruption to him. We're not an annoyance and we're not an inconvenience. We are his purpose. And as he says here, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Or more specifically, it is for this that I have my purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. I want to make a couple observations here before I I really bring this whole concept of spiritual warfare home to us. One is when... When, when Jesus is in verse 34, uh, confronting the demons in verse 34, they say to him, go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It's an interesting phrase that occurs in the original language here. And it's not what do you want with us. It's a, it's a phrase that is simply what's, what's with you and with us in this situation is, is how it's worded. It's, it's almost the idea of like, are you flexing on me? Like, what, what's going on here? As, as you know, you're bowing up? I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely wrecking. The way that they're saying this is the recognition that, wait a minute, there's a whole lot more conflict coming my way than I realized, and it's coming at a time that I didn't actually reckon as, as a demon. It's, it's used in um, Judges when Jephthah, who's a judge who starts to rule Israel, has an incursion by the Ammonites, I believe, And as the Ammonites come and invade Israel, Jephthah sends word to the Ammonite king saying, what's with you and with me? Or, you know, why are you you doing this? Why is it that you are attacking me? Uh, And it's, uh, it's used 
often throughout, throughout the Gospels with that sort of sense that goes on. Uh, we'll, we'll see it in a little while later, even when uh, Jesus confronts the demoniac on the, other side of Gal- on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when the, the crazy demoniac filled with demons comes to him, he uses the same phrase. What's, what, what is this between you and me that's going on here? And it's this idea of, whoa, why, why are you bowing up on me? Why are you flexing on me? Don't be silly. And, but Jesus is doing that. Jesus is flexing up on the demons. The gloves are coming off, to use the hockey analogy, and this thing is about to get real. And so it does. And from this point on, the, the interesting thing in Jesus' ministry is, you see a lot of what he does in the Old Testament. Healing, preaching, uh, being able to proclaim freedom for the captives, Binding up the brokenhearted. All of this goes on. But you know what doesn't occur in the Old Testament? You don't see driving out of demons. It only occurs here. And it only really occurs mainly in this Galilean ministry where the big fight begins through, through that kind of 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock on the Sea of Galilee. It is highly focused there as Jesus is in the throes of the initial declaration of war for whom? For you. He's declared war for you. But as he declares war, we've got to be sobered by that fact and to recognize that it's time for us, if all of this is going on, to choose which side we're going to be on. And it's, it's very vogue these days to be non-committal. Well, what's good for one is good for another. This postmodern mindset of, well, who's to judge? You know, this is not one where you can fall on either one side or the other. I mean, where you can fall on both sides, rather. You have to fall on one side or the other. There's no vacillating, waffling, back and forth going on here. It's time to pick a side. And it's either, are you in league with Jesus? Or are you in league with the demons? Here's praying that you're in league with Jesus because as he tells us in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then I like Paul's next phrase. May the God of peace be with you. <laughs> what a cool ending to a letter. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May grace of God be with you. Uh, it is. This, this thing is, is bigger than we want to recognize. It's not about you maybe becoming a bit more effective in your evangelism. It's not about you maybe exerting a little bit more self-control so that you're not so bitter or impure. It's not about that. This thing is bigger than that. This is a cosmic, epic battle that has been declared by Jesus and we're either all in on one side or the other. And to think that there's some gray area in between is to be horrifyingly surprised in the end. Wow. And there, there are many people who like say, well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, but you don't really you know, see it in their lives. And it's, it's interesting that even here in this passage, you have a, uh, a real contrast of where's your faith going to be? You're going to have the faith of a demon or the faith of a disciple? 
And don't be confused that there is a gray area. Because the faith of a demon looks like better than, than the faith of a lot. Look at, look at some of the things that the demons have said just in the passage that we've read. There is one God. Demons know that. You are the Messiah. They knew that he was the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the Holy One of God. You have the power to destroy us. If you believe all that, great. But you only qualify for demonic faith at this point. It's not enough to believe in the resume of Jesus. To know all of those facts and to hold to them for Jesus. Yeah, he's Lord. He's Savior. He died on the cross. He died and he rose again. Don't you think the demons know that even better than we? That they know the backstory? They understand the bigger epic struggle? They know when there was a war in heaven and all that kind of was manifested through what Jesus did on the cross? They understand all of that. But what's the biggest difference? James, Jesus' brother, says, You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So, what is the difference between a saving faith, a disciple's faith, a disciple following Jesus, trusting in him, believing in him, versus what James talks about here, versus the declarations that we've already seen in Luke chapter 4. The difference between demonic faith and a disciple's faith. Well, the big difference is, while the demons believe that, they don't like what they believe. And they don't submit to what they believe. We've got to make sure when we see which side of the cosmic line that we fall, that even though we may not like some of the things that we believe, that we are nonetheless going to trust and submit and surrender over to Christ rather than to imitate the demons and assert ourselves, recognize the great truth of Jesus, that he's Lord, that he's Master, that he's Messiah, that he's Savior, that he rose again, and not rearrange our lives for his sake. The biggest thing, you know, I, I spent all of my teens and 20s knowing the word of God. Not well, but knew it pretty well. I mean, knew all the facts. Had at least, you know, been to church uh, you know, enough hundreds of times to have had a lot of it make its way in through osmosis, if not by direct reading. And even that happened a little bit. But I knew all of that, but it had no effect. If you would ask me when I was 12 or 17 or 21 or 28, did I believe in Jesus? I would have, I would have asserted it strongly. You bet I do. The Son of God? Yeah. The Messiah? The Holy One? He's my Lord and my Savior. Yeah. Jesus, I'm my homeboy. Jesus. I'd be all over that. But, did I just believe in his resume? Or did I believe in his teachings? And did I surrender and rearrange my life and subordinate my will to his will? Because that's really where the rubber meets the road on what side of this cosmic conflict, this spiritual war that Jesus has declared for your sake. What side do you end up on? 
Let's do a little bit of a, a survey here of some of the things that Jesus says. Mark 7. Now, before I read, this is one of the first scriptures when I was 29 that somebody read with me. But before they did, they asked me, okay, you've spent enough time dabbling in the Bible, claiming some sort of a life in Christ. Are you willing, in this read-through, in this study, are you willing to surrender your will over to what Jesus tells you? And I, at first I was like, yeah, 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 sure. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we all do when we read? No, 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 no. He, he's like, nobody does that essentially. Do you really plan? Because I, I don't want to study this board with you unless you're really planning to subordinate your will to the will of God as it is revealed through his holy scriptures. Otherwise, why waste our time? Are you willing to do this very thing? And they were very strong about it, so much so that I thought, oh, I can't just give a flippant answer right now. I better think this through and consider whether I'm really ready, no matter what comes my way, that this is what's going to guide my path rather than what I think is best. And, and so I prayed, and so I did. And, I prepared, and you know what? My life changed forever. And that, for me, was a big part of the spiritual warfare. Of was I just going to be interested and know the Bible? Or was I really going to be completely directed and guided by the Bible as the will for my life. Here's, here's some things that are not just the resume of Jesus, but the guidance and the charge and command that Jesus has for your life, for my life. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these come from within and make a man unclean. The same word unclean that is used of those spirits that he declared war on. So if we read this and we think, yeah, I know that. But I know I'm still, I'm still going to embrace my arrogance. Advice? What for? Surrender to God? What, really? Uh, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still going to practice theft. If I, if I want that software, if I want that MP3, I'm going to find a way to get it. I'll watch that movie. I'll watch that show. And yeah, it, it, it's not legal. That's fine. But I'm going, to, I'm going to do it anyway. Because, you know, everybody does it. Good luck on Judgment Day with that good one. Deceit. Hey, what's, what's the lie going to hurt here? Besides, if I really told the truth on this one, I mean, it's going to be a whole lot of rearranging in my life. I don't, I don't know if God really wants me to have to do all of that. Hey, it doesn't matter where are we coming down. He's fighting for our souls here. What are we going to do with what it is that he tells us? Because this is the difference between demonic faith and a disciple's faith. A disciple surrenders our will over this and aligns ourselves with the will of God. And, and if sexual immorality is the case here, well, you can't redefine sexual immorality to claim that you go by the word of God. What is moral sex? It's not just a rhetorical question. You can shout it out. But it is marriage. It is the only sexual activity that is deemed by God as within his will. And sex outside of marriage, every time in the Bible, is sexual immorality, not sexual morality. So, 
If you got something going on right now that is not moral sex, there's no special new box that you put it in. It's either moral sex or immoral sex. It's a cosmic war. You can't find some Switzerland ground in between right now. It does not exist. Either we're with Jesus or we're opposing him by our willful disobedience to what he lays out for us. And it's not as though obedience to what he lays out is some miserable existence. It's the greatest life ever. It's pure and holy. It's what we're meant to be. It's in alignment with the will of God. It's an enthusiasm. It's a joy. It's, it's leaping for joy having aligned ourselves with the will of God. But if you think you can have your cake and eat it too, it's not possible. And if there's any sort of sexual immorality that you're still harboring in any way whatsoever, you have demonic faith. Bottom line. You're saying, Lord, Lord, but you're doing what you want. And not taking radical steps about it. Or pick, pick any of these. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And Matthew adds, except for uh, marital unfaithfulness. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Bam! I mean, this is not practiced in our society. And just because it is disregarded by so much of the religious world doesn't in any way make it somehow a new category. It is what it is. It's what Jesus lays out. Do we surrender to it? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Well, I know he says that, but anybody slaps me on my cheek, hey, better watch out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got bravado. You may feel good about yourself by saying that, but it actually takes more courage not to. And, and the, the real hero or heroine is the one that can actually surrender yourself even in these difficult situations to the word of God Amen. for if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their sins your father will not forgive your sins but bam <laughs> yeah but if you knew my brother doesn't matter doesn't matter. And in, in a lot of cases, it's really bad. Yeah. In, in, in a lot of our lives, it's really bad. And in, in, in yours. But you know, there are people here that they, they've had horrific stuff perpetrated upon them. Yeah. And they have been set free. Yeah. Why? Because they have aligned themselves with the will of God. Yeah. And are no longer stewing in their, in their own bitter bile that unforgiveness creates for the rest of your life. Yeah. And you know what? They're not a victim anymore either. You become a double victim once of the, of, of the actual uh, horrible abuse of whatever it might be. But then an enduring long-term victimhood ends up occurring because of the, of the not allowing it to get it out of our lives. Jesus gives us an option for that. If you're not, sit down, study the Bible. There's a way out of all of this. Jesus set war into place so that all of this can be set free in our lives. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain came down, streams rose, winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. 
That's the idea of intense destruction. Surprisingly huge devastation that occurs here. And why does that occur? Because you heard his words, you knew them well, they became very familiar, but yet you didn't put them into practice. Or I didn't put them into practice. And in the end, that's why the crash is that much more devastating. Got to surrender, realign ourselves to the will of God. Disciples' faith. It's every bit here. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. Then he goes on to say, anyone who is ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of him before the holy angels and the Father. How are we doing with that? Do people know about your life in Christ? Are you part of the great campaign of Jesus Christ? Of the war that he has declared? Are you helping others just as you've been helped? we got to choose sides. we got to stop kind of hiding in some sort of a shadow land that we perceive exists when in fact it does not. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. It's America. That's a big one. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. This is all Jesus, by the way. This is not some angry preacher who had a bad day laying this stuff out. I had a pretty good morning, by the way. But this is Jesus making it super clear. Repentance is not an option. Partial repentance is not an option. It's either we repent or we perish. Boom, boom. No new category. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Are you in any way not helping someone out of their own sin? You having those... Text chats that don't really promote holiness? You having those late night talks with your buddies that are trying to follow Christ and it ends up unraveling into discussing things that are either flirtatious or unholy? I mean, this is what, what Jesus is, is telling us here. We've got to realize all of these little gray areas are not an area in which we're to trifle or to play. Jesus don't play. He... He declared war. And he's not playing. This is, this is the real deal. And if, and if you want to be a, a coward, little, little baby about this, rather than getting into the, the real issue here, you know, there, there, there's nothing to be applauded. You're not cool. You're, you're, you're not kind of regarded in, in any positive light by anything cosmically. What whatsoever, you, you you're you're not kind of more enlightened than you know those of us who are like actually surrendered to Jesus. In the end, all of this stuff is super clear. I don't know how to like just to bang you on this deal. Get in the game, yeah. you know. And our teens, I think this is the biggest issue right now. You found a gray area. You found a gray area that is a fantasy land. And it doesn't exist. You put your foot on it and it's, it's, it's nothing there to hold you up. 
Only in your own self-justification. It's not there. It's time to choose which way we're going to go. And finally, whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This is the way of Christ. We follow him. We imitate him. We see what it is that he has done. He came to seek and save those who are lost. He began his day by preparing through the Lord. He began his time by getting his strength from God, realizing that what it is that he has to do is beyond any human and any God-human that subordinates himself completely to a human form. That he's got to make sure that his private life is one of dependence and nourishment from the Almighty so that he can do the things that he needs to do publicly. We can't presume to do the great things as we imitate Jesus publicly if we're not doing the great things as we imitate Jesus privately. And, and I agree. Imitate. Imitate him. That's why this is here. That's why we have the gospel. That's why from this point forward, we're going to have the call throughout the gospel of Luke. Follow me, follow me, follow me. What has happened so far in this gospel is that Jesus has won the battle as the new Adam. He has stirred up the conflict of his teaching by, by his initial preaching in the synagogue. Now he has declared war on all things unholy, evil, and demonic. And then after having done this and shown himself, pouring himself out, he is next going to, as we get into Luke 5, then begin, after we see this brilliant picture of our hero, our Archagon, as uh, uh, Javier spoke of earlier, we see this beautiful picture of our champion, and then he's going to say, all right, the war is on. You're going to follow me or not? Those are the two options. Oh. Who knows where I'm at? So let me, let me give this closing charge to us all. We've got a Jesus who is willing to go to the mat with demons, with Satan, for every one of us because he cares about us that much. And what he is looking for from us is not that we climb a mountain or swim the sea, but that we trust in him. Trust in him enough not just to declare Lord, Lord, but to actually do what he says. And what he says is not burdensome. What he says is the best life possible. It is the life to which you were destined to be reborn to live. And so, give yourself a little bit of a test that you will not end up in league with satanic, demonic faith. Pick a passage that's difficult. Pick a teaching that you may not like so much. Because the demons didn't like it, and they disregarded it, and opposed it even. But you pick a passage, a difficult passage, you pick one, and you decide, you know, you know what? I'm going to let it be known between me and Christ, and even with my, my friends in the body of Christ, that I am surrendering my will to the will of God. I'm going to have the faith of a disciple. I'm going to be on the side of Jesus. I'm going to be part of the cosmic victory. I'm going to dance when it comes time to say, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I like how uh, Peterson adds in the message version of the Bible. And he says, and you will stomp him into the dirt. Better to be on this side of the boot than on that side of the boot. And a simple way to get ourselves going in that right direction is pick the teaching. Pick it now of what it is that is difficult and it will make, give you a stretch and take, give, give you uh, a reason to give pause 
You say, all right, am I really going to put this into practice? Am I really going to have a faith that trusts and subordinates my will to the will of God? And share it with somebody. Pick somebody that, hey, you know what, this is a tough passage for me, but you know what, I am going to put this into practice. And I guarantee you, having put it into practice, you won't come away with, oh man, why did I ever listen to that sermon? Why did I even deal with any of that? You won't have that attitude. You will be leaping for joy as we all will every time we align ourselves with his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We're astounded, we're amazed, and we're all the more ready to praise our great Jesus who has gone to war for us and is ready to lead us in a triumphant victory. Amen. Amen.